I'll be reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As, is it, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome everybody. Hey, I'm about to I'm about to break a bunch of expensive equipment. Um, my name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, it's good to have you. As Heather said, we're excited to celebrate Easter with you, who is here, and everyone who is online. I want to start today with a couple of questions. Questions just to help orient our moment together, orient our celebration, orient the reason that we have gathered. So we're going to start with three questions. Question number one, how do you see God? How do you see and imagine and picture God? Say that you have in your head a gallery of images. And within that gallery, there's like a gallery of God, and you enter into that gallery, and when you hear the words God, or when you hear language about God, certain images come up in your gallery. Certain pictures, certain presentations, certain stories of God, and they form the gallery of God that comprises your imagination, or your picture, or your image of God. And these questions, who is God and how do we see God, is one of the most important questions that we can ask because it defines so much else about us. How we see God will have words to say about how we see ourselves, and how we see God will have words to say about how we see one another, and how we see God will shape how we interact with others, and how we engage with others, and what our ethics look like. 
There was a study out of the University of Michigan that said your picture of God directly relates to your ethics. And so if you believe that God is violent, it will most likely produce a more violent kind of faith. If you believe that God is judgmental, it actually produces a more judgmental faith. That there is a direct correlation between your image of God and the way that you live, the way that you engage the ethics of your life. So how do you see God? How do you picture God? When you enter into the gallery of God in your mind, what images come to mind? Question number two, where do those images come from? What informs the images that are in your gallery? What shapes the images that are in your gallery? What informs the pictures of God that you hold on to? A lot of us inherit our images of God from our religious traditions. We grew up in some kind of church or some kind of religious context or some religious institution, and so the images of God that we have look like those images, the ones that we heard on a Sunday, the one that we heard preached from the stage like this one, the ones that we learned in Sunday school with like flannel graphs or Bible cartoons, like that's what shapes our image of God. But our images of God can also be shaped by experiences that we have. Our images of God can be shaped by the relationships that we had. If we had a parent who was overbearing, what often happens is that overbearing or judgmental or harsh parent, that gets internalized and then re-externalized as our image of God. And so we begin to imagine that God is like our parents. We hear Father and imagine that he is like our Father. So the experiences that we have can shape our images of God. Our religious traditions can shape our images of God. Our culture and our traditions around us can shape our images of God. And then finally, here's the third question. What do those images mean about you? What do they say about you? What do they say over you? As you enter into your gallery of God and you see pictures of God presented, what is that picture doing? Like, do you have an image of a God who is scowling in judgment? Because most likely what that will then lead to is it means that there is something wrong with you, right? There's something to be judged. If you have an image of God that is just very distant, very removed, very far away, well, then it most likely means that you're just alone, that there is no divine presence in the world around you, that life is mostly without God. So what is your image of God? Where does your image of God come from? And what do those images say about you? How do they shape you? What do they speak over you? What words do they utter about you? What does your image of God say about you? I want to start with these three questions because today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus with the cross kind of presents the most central image of the Christian faith. If you walk into a church, that's probably what you will see images of, the resurrection or the crucifixion. It's both like a very literal way and a thematic way. The cross and the resurrection present us a central image of God, an image of our faith that we would say everything kind of orients around. But what does that image actually say? What does that image actually communicate about God to us? If we believe that the resurrection is central to our faith and we're here to celebrate Easter, why? 
Most of our images of God in our mind are harsh or judgmental. Why would we celebrate that he is alive? If our images of God are distant and transcendent and removed, why would we celebrate this moment? What does the resurrection say about who God is and what does it communicate to us? What image does it give us? The text that Sandy read from us at the beginning is from Romans chapter 8. And in that moment, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church in a city in Rome, and they're wrestling with similar kinds of questions. What does this thing, this resurrection, this story of hope mean about us? What does it say about us? What does it speak to the gods that we worship, the images of God that we inherited from our previous faiths, from our world around us? What does it mean for us? And throughout Romans 8, Paul has been laying out just a beautiful set of beliefs and a beautiful argument. It's a long chapter. He's just been laying it out, trying to help us understand who God is. But he comes to the very end of the chapter, and he says, I'm going to sum up all of it for you. I'm going to sum up what the resurrection means. I'm going to sum up what the cross means. I'm going to sum all of this up in this way. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? How do we sum it up? And he says this, if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? When the Apostle Paul goes to explain what the cross and the resurrection means, he says very simply that God is for you that God is for you. Another New Testament writer will say it very similar, writing this, this is how the love of God is revealed. That God sent his only son into the world so that we could live through him. This is love. It is not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to heal our sins. What image of God is presented to us in the cross and the resurrection? What image of God do we celebrate on Easter? We celebrate and receive an image of God who is for us, who entered into the world to be with us, who absorbed the hostility of this world, the sin of this world, the distance of this world, to be in relationship to us. This is the great reveal of the resurrection. It's the great reveal of God to the world, in fact. Paul will say in another moment when he's writing to another church that this moment reveals who God is in entirety. In Colossians 1.15, Paul will say Jesus is the image of the invisible God and all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him when he reconciled all things to himself, when he brought peace through the blood of the cross. What Paul is saying is that the crucifixion and the resurrection reveal to the world who God is. And what it reveals is the love of Jesus displayed for us. It reveals a God who is for us. It reveals that at the bottom of every image, that at the bottom of every story, at the bottom of every tradition that we've held on to, that Jesus is actually the ultimate revelation of God to the world. So if we want to know who God is, if we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus in the crucifixion and the resurrection. 
If we want to know how God feels about the world, we look to Jesus in the crucifixion and the resurrection. If we want to know how God thinks, we look to Jesus in the crucifixion and the revelation. And in that moment, we see who God really is. All other images that we have of God have to be compared, contrasted, and sometimes even rejected if they do not look like Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. The writer of Hebrews would say the same thing. He would say that Jesus is the ultimate word of God to the world. All other words have to be submitted to the cross and the resurrection. So if you have another image of God that contradicts the love that you see in the cross, well, it's not who God is. Now, Paul goes on to say, he's like, if this is God, and if this is who God really is, Paul has a question in Romans. He says this, who then is the one that condemns you? If this is who God is, who then is the one that condemns you? Who shames you? Who condemns you? Who excludes you? Who judges you? Who refuses you is the question that Paul is asking. And I think for a lot of us, the answer is, honestly, kind of a lot. Many of us carry a history and a memory of condemnation. We've been condemned because of who we are. We've been condemned because of our body or our race or our gender. We've been condemned and shamed by religious heritages and traditions and institutions. And unfortunately, and maybe most painfully, we've experienced condemnation from loved ones, friends and parents and spouses. Some of us are not even sure where we have received condemnation from, but there's this just internal voice of condemnation within us that speaks words of judgment or shame over us. And something happens when we are condemned and when that condemnation gets internalized, it sort of subtly shapes the images that we hold. It shapes the images that we hold of ourselves, and then eventually and subtly and sneakily that shapes the images of God that we have. What is internalized most often is externalized into the world around us. And so that internal voice that speaks words of judgment, well, it often starts to sound like the voice of God speaking words of judgment or shame or terror or rejection. There's this old uh, criticism of religion that there is no God. Humans just looked into the void and saw a pale reflection of themselves looking back. And I think there's actually some truth to that criticism that most of the gods that we worship do look like a pale reflection of ourselves. They look like our pain reflected back at us. They look like our trauma reflected back at us. They look like our hate and our judgment and the cruel words that we've internalized, it looks like those things reflected back at us. If we feel this way, maybe it's because it's true, because God speaks those things. We look at God and we see the most painful parts of ourselves reflected back at us. And our images of self and our images of others and our images of God are reformed and reframed. 
But look at what Paul goes on to say. He says, who condemns you? Paul answers that question for us. He says, no one. No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Now sometimes what Paul says here, interceding for us, can actually be used to almost prove the point that I just said above, that that the Father actually condemns us. You see, Jesus is like appealing to the Father. Jesus loves us, but the Father doesn't, and Jesus has to argue our case on behalf of us. But that's not what the text says. Jesus says, intercede to the Father and appeal to us so that no one judges us. The text says, no one condemns you. And we just said that Jesus reveals who God is. So the way that God operates in Jesus is how we know who God is. And so there is no condemnation from God. Jesus isn't convincing the Father to love us. So then who is Jesus interceding to? Well, I think the issue is is that our images of God are hard to get away from. They are deeply woven into our psyche, deeply woven into our imagination. And the cross and the resurrection challenges those false images by presenting a God of sacrificial love at the center of our faith. But that doesn't mean that we get it. It doesn't mean that we understand it. It doesn't mean that we just immediately internalize this new reality of God. No, we need words of truth spoken over us. We need Jesus to intercede. Not to God. God does not condemn us, but to us. Jesus makes appeals to us. He speaks truth over us. And what is the truth that is revealed? Paul says this, Who then shall separate you from the love of Christ? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus speaks over us and to us the truth that is revealed in the resurrection, that God is for you. And that all other images and all other stories and all other condemnations are false. God is for you. It's like Jesus is slowly peeling back all of those images that we have written onto self and onto God. You think you are condemned? No. Nothing can separate you from the love that is in me. You think that you are shamed? No. Nothing can separate you from the love that is in me. You think that you are rejected and excluded? No, nothing can separate you from the love that is in me. I am for you. Who could possibly be against you? No one condemns you except most often you. The resurrection reveals who God really is. And it challenges all of our other images, all of our assumptions, all of our lies, all of our false beliefs about who God is, it peels them back and begins to erase them. And what does it mean for us, that final question? Oh, it means 
that we are deeply, irrevocably loved. One of my favorite writers is a person named Brennan Manning, and he says, your truest identity is that you are beloved by God. Everything else is, well, kind of everything else. What if we believed that? What if we honestly believe that about ourselves and about those sitting next to us? What if we actually believe that's how God moved towards us, believed about us? What if that was true? Paul says in Galatians 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I think the answer is it would look like freedom. We would look to a life of freedom in the power and boundless room of love. And our images of God should lead to freedom. If what Paul is saying is true, if what was revealed in Jesus is true, it should lead to love and to freedom. But it is not always easy. And so we have to rehear the Jesus story again and again, that God is for us, and that nothing that we can do, nothing we can say, can exclude us, can stop us from receiving it. That's why we gather today to celebrate Easter, because we need to hear again and again that Jesus story. That's why we're going to sing more songs in a moment, because we need to internalize a different set of stories about how God sees us, about how God moves in the world, about how God is operating. And it's why we practice table. You'll notice that somewhere around you is a little communion element. It's like a little cup, and on the top is like a tiny wafer, and there's some juice in there. Gluten-free, friendly version. Somewhere also. These little elements, they're kind of strange to do this way. Like, they're strange to do at your own seat, and to do so removed from one another. But they are the symbol of God's work in the world. Jesus, on the last night he was with his disciples, what we celebrate this week, he gathers them together and he says, this is my action. This is the symbol of my action for you. And it's symbolized most appropriately in a meal, a meal that you are invited and welcomed to. And so, Missio, in a moment I'm going to pray, and then I invite you to take those communion elements, to take the bread and to take the cup. But as you do, recognize that this is a gesture or a symbol of God's welcome to you. So as you hear the story today, as you sing the song today, as you take the table, would you hear again the truth declared in the resurrection that God is for you. No one, not even you, can be against you. And as you take that communion element and as we pray and as we continue to sing, hopefully that begins something in you. But then after this, we ask you to go and to continue celebrating. To live in light of this revelation. It doesn't stop here. Our whole lives are meant to be lived in light of the freedom that is empowered by love. So, Mr. let me pray for you. And then let's continue to worship continue to celebrate and continue to internalize a different image of God, one revealed in the resurrection. Missy, let me pray for you.
God, we thank you today for the great reveal of you to the world that you are for us. And that no one, not us, not someone else can be against us because you are for us. And so today as we sing your songs and as we gather at your table and as we leave this place to celebrate, will you press into us deeper than ever before an image of you rooted in the cross and the resurrection, image of you in love. And that reshape all of the images of you that we hold, all the images of self that we hold that would try to contradict that or speak against that. And God, we know the victory of your love, that nothing, no height, nor depth, nor power could separate us from you. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.